been uh, in the in the last several weeks, really since the beginning of the year, we've been as a church saying, hey, we're going to fall in love with God's word and we're going to walk through the word together and looking at 1 John specifically. And uh, I'm not going to teach any of Pat's messages. We're, we're going to go a different route. But one of the one of the reasons we want Carpenter's Way to be the uh, a church that is in love with God's word isn't just so that we know God's word well, but because we know the author of God's word well, which is... God. We want to know God better. We want to know the character of God. We want to know the traits of God. When we speak about what God wants and what God wills for our community and for our loved ones, we want to be accurate. We want to have some basis for putting that on. And uh, I don't know if you guys have the internet in your house, but uh, in my house, people on the internet are dumb, and they say really dumb things about who God is and what God is about. And uh, really, our only uh, access to knowing God is through his word. And so we're really focusing on that. And so uh, uh, I'm going to teach here in a moment out of John chapter uh, 11, but I want to read as, uh, as I get ready for that. I want to read out of John chapter 14. So if you want to turn to John chapter 11 to prepare, or if you're just really good at your Bible sword drills, you can flip back and forth. Uh, you can go ahead and be in 14 with me. Uh, I'll set up John chapter 14 this way. is uh, Jesus has done pretty much all of his miracles at this point, all of his famous ones, right? We're going to read about him raising somebody from the dead here in a moment in John chapter 11. But in John chapter 14, that's past tense. Uh, blind people have been able to see. Lepers have been healed. He's done all of the big miracle things that we know Jesus, walking on water, turning you know, uh, water into wine, all the, all the good ones, all the, uh, the, the hits and wonders. Um, but he's in John chapter 14, Jesus is trying to tell his disciples, like, this is who I am. This is who I'm about. Uh, we're, we're wrapping things up. He's, he's about to have the, the last supper. Um, and he's talking about who he is and who God is. Now, regardless of where you're at in your faith journey, I was having a conversation in the hall between services about, like, everybody's on a different path. Like, we kind of take different routes to figure out the same thing. No matter where you're at on your path, um, you're trying to figure out the same things. You're trying to figure out who God is, what God wants for your life. And some of you uh, have already found out that Jesus is the hope that God offers. And some of you are still asking the question, like, is Jesus really who he says that he is? Um, and we want to we address all those things. Because what Jesus says right here is who God is. And in John chapter 14, uh, it's going to start in verse 8 here, but I'm going to start in verse 6 uh, just because I didn't tell Dave uh, that I was starting in verse 6. That's, that's on me. But Jesus says this, and you've heard this before. Jesus said to him, I am the way uh, and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Everybody's heard that, right? Got a coffee cup. Someone's got it on your shirt right now. Like, hey, someone first serves like, I got that. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. I love it. Jesus is very plain. You want to know the Father? Look at me. Look at who I am. Look at the things I've done. Look at the things I care about. And I'm giving you a window, a glimpse of who the Father is. Um, and if you're like me, uh, sometimes thoughts pop in your head. You're not sure if you're allowed to ask them. Uh, Philip, uh, in the very next verse, asked the thought that pops in his head that he probably should have been like, you just answered that, but, you know, he's, he's dumb like Jesse. He says this, he says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. So Philip's response to Jesus is like, yeah, okay, yeah, I was there for the Lazarus thing. I was there for the walking on water thing. I was there for the water into wine thing. I was there for you talking to the woman at the well. I was there for all these things. But Jesus, if you just show us a picture of the Father, that would be good. Like, pull out your cell phone, show us a selfie of you and your dad hanging out, and that would be good enough for me. And uh, that's, that's not in, even in the message. There are no cell phones in the Bible, in case you're going to proof text this later. In verse 9, Jesus said to him, 
Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can he say, show us the Father? Um, my, my son, he's uh, about to turn eight uh, next month. This month, actually. Ooh, that's sneaking up on me. But when he was about three years old, I would, I would have conversations with my son, and uh, I would tell him things, and I'm like, all right, dude, you got to stop doing now. Give him some instructions. If you're a parent, it's like that same thing you've had to tell your kid over and over again. And eventually he would look at me after I'm, like, explaining all the rules to him, and he would say, what are you even saying, Dad? Which would really, like, make steam come out of my ears because I'm like, I'm saying stop doing that thing. I've said it a thousand times. I've said it a billion times, son. He's like, what are you even saying, Dad? Jesus looks at Philip, and he's like, "Uh, how can you even say show us the Father? What are you even saying, Philip? Like, have you not been paying attention to, like, everything you've seen up to this point? Verse 10, he says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So Jesus' response is like, how can you even ask that? You should at this point be able to figure out I am the Christ and I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you can't, at least just believe in the works themselves. Believe, Believe in the things that you've seen me do. This is, this is extremely important to pick up on uh, here at Carpenter's Way because one of the things that is in, is in our DNA is that at the beginning of every service, we get into those prayer circles. And if you're like new around here and you're, you're like, that's really uncomfortable, I don't know. But what's great about those prayer circles is that you hear, like, you get to tell something that God has done in your life, right? But then you hear like this guy over here that you just met for the first time tell you something that happened that God did in their life. And you start to hear God's works in other people's lives. And we get to celebrate that, oh, that is the nature of God. And that is is who God is. And Jesus says to Philip, he says, believe because you know me, or at least believe because of the works that you've seen me do. Uh, In John chapter 11, we're going to read about one of the like big works that, that Jesus did. It's kind of pivotal in the story of John. If you're a literature nut, this is like the, the pinnacle of the gospel of John where everything seesaws to the crucifixion. Before this, all of the Pharisees and scribes couldn't figure out if they're ready to crucify him. They tried a couple of times, but they really weren't one-minded, laser-focused on it. But then after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it's like, all right, we got we to gotta get him. It moves straight towards uh, the, the crucifixion. Um, about four years ago, uh, I got a phone call that uh, kind of changed the entire course of that day. Before this phone call, I had like plans and an agenda. I had things going on. I was, I was getting ready to do some things. I'm sure I had like grocery lists and like work on my 401k or something. I don't know what I was going to do that day, but I had a list of things. I'm sure of it. Um, but this phone call stopped all that because when you get a phone call that someone's died, like everything like shifts in your focus, right? There are moments in our lives that that everything was chaotic or out of focus, not that, they, not that you weren't seeing important things, but you're seeing some important things, but then you go to a funeral or something along those lines, and everything is, you're going you're gonna to pay attention. So I get this phone call that my sister has died. My sister is, was 10 years older than me, so she was about 41 uh, at this time, and she has died, which really wasn't a surprise or a shock to me or anybody who knew her. She, she had wrestled with and lost the fight to drugs and addiction uh, throughout that time, and whether she died from uh, an OD or she just died from complications that you know she put her body through, it's, it's really unclear, but needless to say, it was drugs. And I get this phone call because Jesse is the only pastor 
pastor in the entire family. Um, and when someone dies, you're going to do the funeral. That's just what you do. And uh, so I get this phone call. I'm going to do my sister's funeral, and I agreed to do it. And um, you're a lot, I can tell just by looking at it, you're a lot smarter than me. Um, it, you know from the beginning, man, that's got to be really hard to do your own sister's funeral. It didn't occur to me that that was going to be a difficult thing. It didn't occur to me that it was going to be different than doing another funeral, like to, to see your mom sitting in the front row of the funeral, and you're kind of going through the, the talk. And when you go to a funeral, all of the 401k and all of the, like, you know, where are we going to put Billy in preschool questions, not that they're not important, they just don't matter at the funeral, right? You focus on different things. You focus on hope. You focus on, like, what really matters in, in all of this. We're going to look at the story of Lazarus. And uh, I've done uh, a few funerals where I've taught the story of Lazarus at, at that funeral as part of the message. But, but what, I, what I don't want to do is make the mistake that I always seem to do is like I'll hear like the cliff notes and I'll, I'll cheat all the way to the end, right? Because as soon as I mention the word Lazarus, you think that fool got up and walked again, right? Like, oh, yeah, he, sure, he was dead, but I mean, Jesus brought him back. But there is an entire chapter of humanity and pain, and grief, and rearranged priorities in that funeral message that we just always skip over, and we miss it all the way through. And I was just teaching a message Wednesday to the students that we touched on Lazarus, and since Lazarus was one of my favorite passages, and I had 14 hours notice to prepare for hanging out with you this morning, I thought, you know, let's look at the story of Lazarus, and specifically I want to answer one question. We're going to look at all the humanity along the way, but specifically I want to answer this one question. It's like, what do we know from God what do we, let me rephrase that. What do we know about God from this glimpse into Jesus and how he handles this funeral, how he handles this, the, the, the grief, how he handles the questions, how he handles the broken hearts? Because Jesus said later after this, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So when we see how Jesus handles this problem, maybe we catch a glimpse of how God is willing and able to handle the problems that we bring to him. So if, uh, if you'll bear with me, let's, uh, let's teach and learn through John chapter 11 and uh, look at the story of Lazarus. Stall, sip, and go. All right, John chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Verse 2, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Interesting piece of uh, like literature right there. Uh, John, the author, wants us to know that this is the same Mary that like used her hair to clean Jesus' feet. Can I just take a moment and say that's disgusting? Um, I think it's beautiful in the Bible. I get the beauty of it. I just, like, I'm a germ guy, or uh, against germs. I'm not a germ guy. That's, that's not, okay, we'll edit that from the podcast. Jesse the germ guy. Uh, no, um, like, I don't know. But anyhow, uh, this, this hasn't happened yet. The, the Mary uh, anointing Jesus' feet with her hair is actually in the next chapter. It's as he's getting ready for his crucifixion. What's interesting right here is that we see from John ordering these things this way, is that John is writing the book of John, and it's going out into the wild while some of these people are still alive. And he's saying this. He's like, oh, by the way, if you know Mary, if you know Martha, that's the same Mary who did the hair thing. I'll tell you about it next chapter, but you just need to know it's the same Mary that, that did that thing. 
And so Mary and Martha have a brother named Lazarus, and we know that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus spent a lot of time with Jesus. There's, there's a lot of stories about Mary and Martha interacting with Jesus. You see, uh, if you've read some of this where like uh, Martha uh, and Mary are going to have a party and Jesus is going to be the guest of honor, and when Jesus shows up, Martha stops working and she goes and sits down and listens to everything Jesus says, but Mary's like washing dishes, and the more she washes, the angrier she gets, and she's like, come on. And so she goes and Jesus like, Jesus, will you tell my sister to get up and do something? And Jesus says, well, your sister chose better. Okay. And so she sits down too. Like this is like, we see all kinds of humanity all over these people, right? The city that they were in is the city of Bethany. Uh, John will tell us later that it's two miles outside of Jerusalem. It was two miles to the east of Jerusalem. And what we found in history books and people who do archaeological digs and everything is that the city of Bethany was essentially like a leper colony or like a clinic. Okay, And so if you were sick with a chronic illness that could not be healed, you weren't allowed to go to the temple to worship. And so for a lot of people who lived in this time who were, who were Jewish and they wanted to get close to God, Bethany, the city of Bethany, was the closest you could get. You would, you would come in from the east, you'd be traveling towards Jerusalem, and you'd be two miles away in the city of Bethany. And when the sun set just right, you could see the temple. You could see Jerusalem in the distance, but mostly everybody over there would dismiss you because you had leprosy or you had some kind of illness. So you would stay there and you'd worship to the best of your ability. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they believe, were some of the people who kind of ran one of these clinics. They, ran, they were like hospice nurses, we would consider them. They couldn't do anything to heal the people. They weren't doctors, but they would, they would do palliative care. They would do what they could to, to help and to minister and to serve and to, to love these people, Right? Uh, some historians believe, not that I can prove it, but I'll just say it for the sake of you knowing this, that Lazarus was actually a retired priest, and he used to work in the temple, and in his retirement, he went to this leper colony to kind of help out and do what he can. Like, the dude would just love and work. And so, you can imagine, imagine if every one of us had a grandparent or someone who was in hospice care, and they all went to the same hospice uh, clinic in Bethany, and Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were the ones who cared for all of our grandparents, and all of a sudden, one of those three died, Lazarus died. Like you, as someone who loved what they did for your loved one, would want to be a part of that funeral, right? You would want to be there. You would want, it would be heartbreaking. And what we know from John, uh, I'm, I'm reading, I'm adding a lot to it, but it's all going to be explained here in a second, uh, is, is that Jesus was really good friends with these people. Not just he knew them kind of, but like he hung out there. And the theory is, is that as he went across the Jordan, came down, and before he entered Jerusalem, and if you know anything about Jesus, he spent a lot of time in Jerusalem, the theory is, is that he hung out with his friends every time he came to Jerusalem. He'd probably go spend the night at Lazarus' house. If you have friends who live like a little bit out of town, and you're going on vacation, and you take like a slight detour just so that you can spend the evening having dinner with your friends and catching up and playing cards or whatever it is that you do, that's the kind of friendship that people think that Jesus had with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And he just found out that his buddy is sick. Verse 3, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, uh, he whom you love is ill. They, they sent a letter and a messenger and said, the one who you love is sick. He's not dead yet, he's ill. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So all of his disciples are like, oh, okay, he'll get better, he'll be fine. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. 
We all know the story of Lazarus' sins and resurrection, so it makes a lot of sense that he stayed two days longer. It's like, oh, he's going to do something big. He's going to do something powerful. If you're his disciples, be like, uh, hey, Jesus, uh, your buddy's sick, uh, so we're staying two days longer? Yeah, I love him so much. We're going to hang out a little bit later. It's weird, uh, but let's keep going. Then uh, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, uh, teacher, uh, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Hey, Jesus, I don't know if you remember this. Last time we were that way, they wanted to kill you, and so we went this way, and you're saying let's go that way again? Are you sure? Like, maybe for God? I I don't know. Um, Just like when you get that phone call early in the morning, and a funeral is happening, and all your uh, responsibilities are reprioritized. What was dangerous is no longer that important. That's kind of what's going on right here. Is Jesus is about to explain to them, like, something more important going on than just our life being in danger. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. That sounds really cryptic to us, but he's already taught them, I am the light. I am the way, the truth, and the light. And so he's teaching them, hey, the light's going that way. And so if you want to stay with the light, we're all going that way to Judea. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. He's taking a little cat nap, and we're just going to go sneak up on him. Hey, come on, wake up, big guy. And so the disciples look at him and like, Oh, great. Well, if he's taking a nap, we don't even need to go, right? They haven't got the whole rest in peace idea. You guys know like RIP, R-I-P? They don't, they don't say that yet. Uh, so the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. He's just taking a nap, Jesus. It's fine. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, that fool dead. No, no, hold on. I translated that wrong. Uh, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Okay, guys, I'm going to say it plainly. Lazarus, our friend who puts us up every time we go into Jerusalem, he's dead. There's a funeral. It's time to go. And his disciples, who were like kind of pushing back, and they didn't, they're like, I don't know, they're going to kill us. Uh, all of a sudden, they switch gears because he got this boy, Thomas, love it. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, turns to the rest of them, and says, All right, let's go, that we may die with him. Jesus is going, he's going to get himself killed, but it's Lazarus and it's a funeral. Let's go. Uh, we're, we're all going to go. I'm not allowed to talk about like fist fights from the stage. Um, it's like, you know, we're all redeemed from something, right? I used to get into a lot of fights in school. And there, there's something to be said, and I don't know if ladies have like a corresponding version of this, but guys will know this. There's something to be said that like you're just sitting there, you're minding your own business, you got your buddy next to you, your buddy right here, and you're just like talking, you're having this conversation over here, and then you turn and you look, and your buddy right here is in a fight. You don't even know what's going on. Like there's a fight right there, and you're like, all right, I guess we're fighting. And then you just get into it. Like, you don't know if you're right, you're wrong. You just, you just go at it. And, and after the fight, everybody's like made a lot of mistakes and there's all kind of like tickets being cited and all kind of problems with it. But, but then at the end of it, you got like a black eye and a bloody nose and you look at the guy who came with you and you're like, Hey man, thanks for having my back. I uh, appreciate that. And so Thomas is like, ah, Jesus, you're going to go get yourself killed. All right, guys, come on, let's go. We're going with him. And so then they take off and they're going to the funeral. Now don't, don't miss this. We're still in the humanity of what's going on right here. Like, we quickly want to fast forward to the resurrection of Lazarus. They have to travel. There's a period of time, and, and it takes a little while to get there. Verse 17, 
Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for, count it, four days. They didn't have any idea of, like, you know, uh, what mortuaries did. They didn't, they didn't prep the body. It's just like four days. He's in there for a while. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now, try to figure out if you're more of a Martha or a Mary in this story. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. Jesus is nearby. She just takes off to go see Jesus. But Mary remains seated in the house, not because she didn't know. We find out later she's a little mad at Jesus right now. Have you ever been mad at God for something? Huh? Have you ever, have you ever had something like so heavy, like weighing on you, and you were praying for X, Y, and Z, and it just didn't happen the way that you had hoped? And, and if you were honest in your humanity, you were just like, you know what? Like, I, I, I don't, I don't, I just, I'm a little mad right now, God. I'm just, I'm a little mad. Martha runs to Jesus. Mary huffs. <sighs> I'm just going to sit here for a while. Everybody just, y'all just, y'all go talk to Jesus. I'm going to sit here for a little while. It's interesting to note also that uh, in this story, you see like people grieve very differently as things happen. And maybe, maybe as a church, we could do better at giving permission to people to grieve in a different way than what maybe we're prescribing them to grieve. Because maybe you're full of a bunch of Marthas and a couple of you are Marys and the Marthas are looking at the Marys and be like, you should grieve like me. Well, Jesus doesn't correct them. Jesus just kind of lets them grieve their own way. It's okay. It's okay to grieve, not just the death, but it's okay to grieve like the loss of a job or the loss of a marriage in a unique way, an honest way. So Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. There's, there's a helplessness there. Because they don't know that Jesus has the power to raise the dead, yet uh, they do know that Jesus has the power to heal sick people. And they've seen that happen a lot. Happened in Bethany, in fact. They've seen Jesus walk on water. They've seen Jesus do all these things. And so she sees Jesus show up. And it's just like, Jesus, you're like four days late. If you had been here, he, he wouldn't have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he'll rise. Like I can, I can see her rolling her eyes right there. I know. I know he's going to rise again. Christians have a really bad habit of giving uh, spiritual platitudes where there's not really room for spiritual platitudes. And so when Jesus says your brother will rise again, he means I got like five more minutes and we're going to do something big. I'm going to raise him again, okay? Like he, he's, he's got a timetable on this. What she hears though is what sometimes Christians do a lot, which is you go somewhere and he's like, you know, just walking with the Lord now. It's like, I get it, but I'm at a funeral and I really miss my, my friend. Okay, yeah, but isn't it great? Like one day we're all going to walk with God. Yes, that is really, really good, but it's okay that I'm brokenhearted right now, right? Uh, because that's her response to Jesus, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. So what we see is that Martha goes to Jesus while Mary huffs in her grief. 
In, in Martha's grief, she runs to Jesus and she finds hope. She talks to Jesus. She misunderstands something Jesus said, which I think we all have a habit of doing that. And then she gets a little bit of clarity about Jesus being the hope. He is the resurrection and the life. I am the hope. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And Martha says, yes, I believe that. So Martha runs to Jesus, gets some hope from Jesus, and she does what we should all do when we find hope from Jesus, is turn around and go find the person who has not yet found that hope. She turns around, she goes and gets her sister Mary, and she says, hey, Jesus is out here, and he wants to talk to you. He has something for you. I found hope in Jesus. Let's all go see Jesus. Verse 29, and when she heard it, Mary, when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village. Like He's not yet close to the funeral or to the house. He's way outside of it, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. This is what everybody does. Um, when you're grieving, you hope that you have people there that are grieving with you. The only thing that makes grief hard is when you're carrying grief by yourself. Mary and Martha had served the community so much so that she had a community of people that are willing to grieve with them. And whenever they saw Mary and Martha get up and run out, they assumed the grief is going to the funeral to continue grieving there. Outside of the, like the house where the food is and the potluck and the casseroles, they're now going back to the cemetery. And so they get up and they're like, hey, we got to go out there. And it turns out they were running towards Jesus in the this crowd is chasing them towards Jesus and didn't even know it. Uh, pay very close attention to who's paying attention to you while you grieve, especially if you're a mom or a dad. Inevitably, you're not grieving in a vacuum of isolation. You have an audience of people who are watching you, and if they see you running towards Jesus, they may actually pick up on the same hope that you find in Jesus as a result of your obedience to do that. Now, verse 32, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his, at his feet. I have in my head like a baseball slide at his feet. I don't know. Um, but she fell at his feet. There's a hopelessness in the word fell. And she said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. There's no rolling eyes. There's no misunderstanding there. She's mad and she's hurt. And she thinks that she's mad at Jesus. She thinks that Jesus has done something wrong here. And she's like, Look, if you, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have gone through this. We wouldn't be hurting right now. We wouldn't even have a funeral if you had just been here, Jesus. When Jesus saw her weeping, what do we expect in that situation? Before I read the next verse, what do we expect? What do we expect from God when we're honest with our humanity and say, you know what, God, I'm tired of my depression God, I'm tired of this job. That, like, I know it puts food on my table, but I'm just so tired of it. I wish, I wish you would answer the prayers that I'm praying to you. What do we expect God's response to be when we're so honest and vulnerable? If you're like me, my assumption is that God gets a little ticked off at me. That God is like, maybe he's like, you know what? I'm going to turn down my grace on you a little bit, Jesse. And I'm just going to, I'm going to like, you know, you know, stop being mad at me. I was taught growing up, uh, the churches that I went to as a, uh, as a young believer, I was taught that, like, you just kind of fake it till you make it, you know? And you, you tell God all the happy things. You don't have to be real about your humanity. You be as, as, as happy as you can be and just fake it if you're not. And what we see here is the opposite. Because I was under the impression that God would be mad at me if I was honest with my humanity. And what we see here is that whenever Mary is honest with her humanity, Jesus looks at her, doesn't, like, shun her, doesn't push her away, he weeps with her. He's brokenhearted from her broken heart. 
you might be in a position right now where you've been so mad at God, you've said all kinds of things, and now you assume that like, God's really kind of put off by you. That's not the God of the Bible. I don't know whose God that is. It's the God of the Internet. I don't know. But it's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible draws close to the brokenhearted. doesn't push them away. He's close to real people. You know, Jesus has an amazing abundance of patience for brokenhearted people who are very real with their humanity. But Jesus has little to no patience for religious people who fake it till they make it. Every time a Pharisee tried to pretend they were more spiritual than the next guy, Jesus shut them down. But when the woman at the well who had such a reputation that she couldn't even go out in public without someone making fun of her or whatever it was that made her go out there solo like that, when Jesus saw her, he was patient with her and showed her grace. The God of the Bible isn't trying to thump us on the head for our arrogance or our, our hurt. He draws close to the brokenhearted. And, and we see right here that, that when Jesus, verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, the shortest verse in the entire Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus, the one who had already announced, I'm five minutes away from raising Lazarus, he's weeping, not because he's at a funeral, he's weeping because he's close to weeping people. What we learn about God is that whenever, you know, like he cares very deeply about the things that break your heart. Let me keep going. I'm going to run out of time. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Well, man, that Jesus, he must have loved that Lazarus. Look at him weeping. They don't even know. Like, they don't even know he's crying not about Lazarus. He's crying about them. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Like, even there, they don't understand the power that Jesus has. They assume that, like, he's missed a deadline or something. And now we're to the part of the story that everybody knows. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. How creepy is that, by the way? They buried this guy in a cave, and they wrapped him in cloths. They have a mummy in a cave, okay? A mummy named Lazarus in a cave. It says, take away the stone. You guys know the rest of this. Martha, the sister of the dead man. Johnny even adds that. In case you guys haven't been paying attention, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said no, said to him, Lord, By this time, there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he prays this prayer out loud so that everybody can hear him talking to God the Father. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said that on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus come out. I love how simple that is. You watch like TV shows and they've got like exorcisms like six hours long and they've got like three priests that are like checking in like, hey, tag me in. And they get in there, they're saying all the things, they got the rang, they're sweating and everything. Like there's this like imagery that like all these spiritual things take all this power and all these like, like antics and acting. And Jesus is like, all right, Lazarus, come on. <laughs> That's it. And then the mummy stands up and walks out of the cave. It says, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Could you imagine? You're at a funeral, and now you're like at, what do you call that, a birthday? Like, what do you do? Like, somebody go get that casserole, switch it out for a cake. I don't, I don't know what you do with that. You know, the, the, 
the story keeps going. Um, the scribes and the Pharisees get so mad at Jesus at this point. It says, the, if you have a heading, the next heading says, the plot to kill Jesus in my Bible. They're ready. They want to do something. If you keep reading into the next chapter, they even develop a plot to kill Lazarus. Whose dumb idea was that, right? Let's go kill Jesus' best friend who had already died and been brought back to dead. What would have happened if they did that? If they killed Lazarus and Jesus was like, hey, Lazarus, come back. He's like, oh, here I am again. Like, round three, I'm ready to go, coach. That's so weird. But at the, end of the, at the end of the story, they were brokenhearted because they were at a funeral thinking that death was the problem, but death wasn't the problem because Lazarus is going to die again. We're all going to die. Everybody in here, we have, we have fears of losing our loved ones, and like, there's grief. There's real grief right there, but that's not the real problem. The real problem is that we're separated in some instance, in some understanding, from this power of God, the resurrection and the hope that Jesus says that he is. I want to end by where I began, which is saying this, that Jesus said that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And I just want to look at five, six observations that we know of God, our creator, based on how Jesus handled this situation. If you could, just bear with me. So what can we know of the Father from looking at Jesus? One is this, that he knows the outcome. He begins with telling his disciples, yeah, he's, he, okay, I'm glad for your sake that this happened. It's for God's glory. Like, he's telling them all these things. Jesus knows everything that Lazarus has gone through. He knows everything that Mary and Martha is about to go through. He knows what you're going through. He knows, he knows what's going on in your marriage and what's going on in your job. He knows that you're struggling to be a good mom or a good dad. He knows that you're struggling in X, Y, or Z. He knows that you're struggling with your anxiety or your depression. He knows the outcome of all those things. He already knows what he's going to do to, to make it right. And if that is in the new creation, he already knows how that's going to play out. He knew he was going to resurrect Lazarus. Uh, before I read anything else, it's just really comforting to know, man, God's got this. God's not surprised by what we're going through. He's not dismissive of what we've gone through. He knows what he's going to do to pull us out of it. We serve a God who is very powerful. But let's keep going. Number two, that he walks towards the source of your pain. Everybody in here has a friend who is like, y'all were best friends until your life went sideways, and then you haven't seen them since. Like, like you, you had like the foreclosure thing happening, and you called like three or four times just like to check in on them, see how they, and they're not picking up your calls anymore. You, you, we know friends who, as soon as the pain hits us, they run away, and sometimes we think that God is like that. Like, God is only the God of the mountaintops. Like, when you're in here, you're raising your hands, and you're celebrating because you're worshiping Jesus, and you feel close to God, you're like, awesome. Love it. And then, whatever, life goes sideways, and you maybe make the mistake of thinking, oh, God must be far from me too, because all my friends are. But that's not the God of the Bible. Jesus ran towards Lazarus in the funeral and Mary and Martha. He didn't push them away. He went towards them. The Bible says that God is close to the brokenhearted. Whatever pain, whatever grief you're going through, the Bible's clear that, that God is not going to be far from you. He's not hiding from you in that. Don't assume that he is. Jesus knows the outcome, and he walks towards the source of your pain. Number three is that he is patient, even if your pain has made you impatient. And some of us are more like Martha. Like, as soon as life goes a little bit hard, like, we run straight to the Father, and we, we're like, oh, I just know. I know where I need to be. And, I, I mean, God bless you. I love you. Sometimes I'm like that. Sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I'm just like, oh. Come on, another month of depression. Are you kidding me? Like, I've got to deal with this again. I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting tired. I'm just like, you know, I could use a break here. Like, sometimes, and you know, 
the, the way I grew up, I was taught to hide those feelings from God. Well, one, that's stupid because God knows the outcome. He's like omniscient and knows that I'm thinking the thought anyway. It'd be really foolish of me to pretend. It's like my son pretending he's not in the room when the blanket is just over his head. I'm like, are you dumb? Like, I'm right, I see you right there. No, I'll play with him. I'm like, peekaboo. I'm not, I'm not mean to my kid. Just, just put that out there. Make sure that's recorded. Uh, but God, you know, he sees me pretending in my humanity that I'm as happy as can be when in reality, all he says is like, just be, be real. Like, you can be real with me. He's patient even if my pain has made me impatient. Whatever, whatever you've gone through in your past or whatever you might be going through soon that maybe it's kind of causing you to like, get a little quick with God, he's not scared of your questions. He's not scared of your impatience. I, I would recommend that you do it with some reverence. Like, if my kid comes up to me and, like, starts barking orders at me, it doesn't end well. So uh, just some reverence. But, you know, Mary, she falls at Jesus' feet, and she's pretty blunt. She's not disrespectful, but she's blunt. She says, you know, Jesus, if you had gotten here just two days ago, four days ago, we wouldn't even be having the funeral. In the next verses, Jesus is crying because she's so brokenhearted. It's good. Number four, he is a source of genuine hope, not false hope, not spiritual platitudes. Um, one of the things that I found at funerals is as I'm sitting, because uh, the pastor is there for comforting and there for teaching uh, at a funeral, but at the end of the day, I'm pretty useless at a funeral. There's just not a lot for me to do. A uh, funeral will move forward with or without me. And so I spend a lot of time watching and watching how people interact. And a lot of people will try to offer hope that really isn't real hope. You know what I mean? Like, they're just like, oh, you know... I hear you, but you know, it's all going to be okay. Yeah, yeah. You break up with someone. Let's back away from the room. You break up with someone and someone's going to come to you and says, oh, there's a lot of fish in the sea. Right, but I, I had a good one. I want that one. You know, yeah, but you know, yeah, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. That's great. Um, it's someone trying. I get it, you know, but Jesus offers a different kind of hope. He offers this genuine hope because whenever she, Martha, is looking to Jesus about the problem that she thinks is the death of her brother, Jesus says, but I in the resurrection and the hope. I am life. I am the solution. Do you believe that? Jesus offers a real hope to whatever pain, whatever struggle you are facing. Number five is that he truly grieves your pain. Shortest verse in the Bible is also one of the most comforting verses, which says Jesus weeps. What does he have to weep about? Like he knows the outcome of it. It's kind of like uh, it's kind of like someone crying about the Cowboys losing the Super Bowl. Like, come on, like we all saw it coming. Uh, also, if you uh, if you see uh, like a recording of an old football game, right, and you know the outcome, what are you doing crying in the middle of it? Like you know what's about to happen. That's kind of Jesus's perspective on all of us. Like he knows exactly how this game is going to end. He knows what we're going to do, and yet. He still has pain when we have pain. He still has humanity. Hebrews says that we have this great and mighty high priest in Jesus because he has faced our pains. He's faced every sin we've faced, every temptation we've faced without sinning. That he, he has this humanity all over him, and he knows what you're grieving, and he grieves with you. And number six, God has real power to make a real difference. At the end of the story of Lazarus, the impossible happened. The man came back to life. He eventually died again. Uh, I'm sure they had another funeral. That had to have been weird to go to Lazarus' second funeral. You're there and you're like, oh, you were at the last one. Yeah. Hmm. It's good to see you again. You know, nobody, nobody thought Jesus had the power before this to raise another man from the dead. And then he does. He does the impossible. You know, sometimes we grieve the impossible things in our lives. 
I'll talk to parents. They, they think that their relationship with their kids are dead. I talk to married couples. They think that their marriage is dead. I've talked to people who think, like, I've applied to five jobs. My ability to get a job is dead. And they think all these things in their life are dead. And you think it's just impossible that there's any real hope except this one thing. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He has real power to make real differences. And you can resurrect all those things. I don't know what you need to hear from me today, Carpenter's Way. We should be a group of people that when we go out there, we know that we're serving a God that resurrects dead things. My students, they go into schools and they think the school is dead and it's hopeless and people are mean to each other. My parents, they go into their homes and they think, I'm just barely making it. This, this relationship is falling apart. It's dead. And I just, I don't, I don't buy it. I think that those are real pains, and I don't want to dismiss those. We really need to address those real pains. But, but we also serve a God who raises dead things. I want us to have a hope when we leave here. I want you to have a hope that whatever it is that you feel is on its way out, that may be dying, that Jesus has the power to bring it back and bring hope to you, but not only to you, because remember this, whatever you're grieving, there's an audience of people following you. And there was a group of people that followed Mary and Martha, and they turned towards Jesus because they followed them accidentally towards Jesus. You may have people that are accidentally following you and see resurrection in your life as a result, and their lives are transformed as well.